Well, good morning and welcome. If you are new or visiting, we are really glad that you're here with us. My name is Mike Harmon. I'm one of the pastors here at Element. Aaron and Marianne returned late this morning or early this morning, late last night. You might cite them at Pumpkin Killing, so if you want to be out there this afternoon, it should be a good time. Uh, today's message on Psalm 126 was pre-recorded for us. Um, Bibles are available for you under the seat bottoms in front of you. Uh, you can borrow one if you didn't bring yours, or if you don't have one, uh, you can take one home with you. We'd like you to have one, so feel free. Uh, on the communion tables around the room are the sermon notes. They look like this, and uh, on the back of them uh, is the psalm that we will be going over today as well, verses that will be in the message today. Um, this is week seven of 15 weeks on the songs of ascent. Uh, inside these uh, sermon notes, you will find on the one side questions for you for Monday through Friday as well as a prayer focus. On the other side are some questions for you to discuss either with family, friends, or in your GC, but they're meant to be in a group format. Um, so again, we encourage you to pick one of those up, take it with you, and then you have it this week to review and further the message. Uh, if you have a smart device, you can follow along in today's message by downloading an app called Uversion. Uh, click on More, and then Events, and Live, and your smart device will bring up uh, today's verses and notes by GPS. So please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 126, verses 1 and 2. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Let's pray together. Father, we need your spirit to help us to learn, to trust you, and to be transformed by the truths from the scriptures this morning. I ask that you would help soften our hearts and open our eyes and our ears so that we might see and understand, gain wisdom and insight so that we might experience your rescue and your redemption. Help us to dream again with a hope found only in you, and that we'd have our joy restored to us, enjoying you and the life that you have given to us. For your glory and for our eternal good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know what you're thinking. You're like, video two weeks in a row? I was coming to a live service, and it's like I'm watching during COVID. Well, today wasn't really planned to be doing by video, but hey, I'll tell you this. If you come to Pumpkin Killing today, I most likely will be there. I probably flew in last night at midnight, so I'm probably sleeping right now, but I do plan to be at Pumpkin Killing today, and I will see you there, hopefully. And what we are doing is we are actually walking through this series called the Psalms of Ascent. That is Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 on our trek into Christmas. And I like sometimes when I get to talk to you guys about stuff like this, like the Songs of Ascent, because you may one day be at a trivia night, and someone may say, what's the Songs of Ascent? And you're actually going to know, because you're learning something in that. Now, my job is not here to give you a whole bunch of trivia answers or things like that. My job is to help us get to a place where we worship God for who He truly is, that we would understand the gospel better. And I think these Psalms of Ascent help us to do that, how to love and serve and Jesus in every step of our lives. Because part of what these Psalms are meant to do is show us that all of our lives are meant to be worshiped. 
Many times we get to a place where we don't feel like worshiping at a given time, but nowhere does the Bible say that we only worship God because we feel like it. We worship God because we're called to do those things. And many times our feelings are great liars. In our culture today, we think that if we don't have a feeling for something, it can't be authentic. But psychology even tells us today that many times we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling before we'll ever feel our way into a new way of acting. And what worship does, it's an act that develops feelings for God. This is why we read these Psalms of Ascent. This is why we walk through these week by week, because what we want to do is see who He is and what He has done, because when we walk through this, it will develop feelings for what worship is supposed to be. Now, this is week seven, walking through this series, and we're going to hit one of my favorite topics today, and this is joy, because I love joy, I love to laugh, I love when there's something hard that my wife and I, or Element, or some friends and I go through, we come out the backside, there is joy at the end of that for coming through that, that could be COVID, hopefully one day we'll come to the end of that, and we'll have some joy, I love when friends come over, and we talk about meaningless stuff, or or politics, or maybe even something hard, but on the backside there is this joy that comes out of that conversation that is given, and so when we look at joy, you might think, how come we're taking so long to get to talk about the joy today? Because there is going to be a trek to get there, but we will get there. But i got to take you on a journey to be able to get to that place. So open your Bibles to Psalm 126. That's page 333 if you have an element Bible. So far in our quest to walk through each of these steps on the songs of ascent in our discipleship journey, we have gone through first repentance. That's where we start. And we listen to what God has said, who he, how he calls us back to himself. We listen to his truth rather than the lies we so often want to tell ourselves. And that moves us then into trusting who God is and what he has said. We trust him each step of the journey. And repentance and trust then lead to worship. Because how could it not lead to worship? Where we ascribe God the worth that is due his name because God is so worthy though we want to then live our lives out in service of one another because our God first came and served and loved and called us to himself and so we then want to live out the same way and as we serve one another this becomes our witness we start to talk about why we live the way that we do and say the things that we say and do all the things that we do because we are witnessing to who God actually is in our lives and as we do that through those hard places every step of our lives that leads to us becoming a steadfast people And steadfast doesn't mean that we have all the answers, that we never have anxiety or never have doubt. It's that we trust that God himself is steadfast, that God is the one who brings us to himself and it makes us a faithful people, which ultimately then results in joy because God is the one who has and holds us. Now, as I said before, what got me thinking about going through this series with you is there's this old book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction by a guy named Eugene Peterson. I had reread it recently, and so I thought, this is a great thing. Let's walk through these songs of ascent. And what Eugene Peterson did is he went through and he translated these Hebrew psalms into modern language because he wanted people to start to read and pray and recite them again. Now, his modern language was a few decades old, so it's not so modern anymore, but it really was kind of a noble task and thing he sought to do. So I'm going to read you his translation of Psalm 126. This is what it says. 
It seemed like a dream, too good to be true, when God returned Zion's exiles. We laughed, we sang, we couldn't believe our good fortune. We were the talk of the nations. God was wonderful to them. God was wonderful to us. We are one happy people. And now, God, do it again. Bring rains to our drought-stricken lives so those who planted their crops in despair will shout hurrahs at the harvest. The English Standard Version says it like this. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. It's kind of really cool. So those who went off with heavy hearts will come home laughing with arm loads of blessing. It seemed like a dream too good to be true. What are they talking about? Well, they're talking about when God brought all the exiles back from Babylon, when he gave them their country again, and they're able to rebuild a temple and a city again. If you were here during the summer, we went through a series called The Miners, and we looked at the minor prophets of the Old Testament. There were 12 of them, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Nine of those 12 prophets talk about how God is coming to discipline his people. And that discipline was where the Babylonians came in and hauled the kingdom of Judah off into captivity. Three of those prophets speak about after the Israelites came back. And this is where the joy comes in because God, even though he was disciplining them, he brought them back and restored them. And that return was so sweet to them. To put this in perspective, I want to tell you what happened and then begin to try and relate that to our lives. Before Israel became a nation, as we've said multiple times, they were in captivity and bondage and slavery in Egypt. And they cry out to God and God hears their cry. God shows up to these slaves in Egypt and he brings them out. They'll eventually cross this thing called the Red Sea. And the Red Sea is this great picture where we cross this line, where we step from death into life. They're in the region that Pharaoh owned. They crossed the Red Sea. They're in a region that nobody owns because nobody owns this God. And so God brings them from slavery to freedom, from death into life. And they sing, sing new psalms at that point out of joy of who God is and what he is doing. And this is kind of what salvation looks like for us. It's a picture of what God does, that God is has brought us from death to life, that God has brought us from slavery into freedom. And when God takes his people across, they then go to this mountain. And there's this mountain called Sinai, where God not only gives this thing called the Ten Commandments, but he also gives his people this thing they're supposed to do in the world. They're supposed to be his message to the world. He says, you will be my priests, my messengers. The way that the people will know what I have done to rescue them is by how you now live. Your lives will be that gospel message. And that same thing is still true for us today. Our lives are meant to be lived out as a result of the gospel message of how Christ rescues and saves us. Now, eventually, they will get their own country. They will get their own capital city called Jerusalem. So they have this nation, this capital city. They start to build a temple to worship God. But what happens is these once slaves who are now free and have their own country end up building much of their empire on the back of slaves. Solomon, who is King David's son, is ruling and reigning. And what you will see in the scriptures is Solomon actually becomes an arms dealer. And he has slaves help build his military installations and palaces. It's like they get to Jerusalem and they lost sight of their calling. They made their lives about themselves and their own comfort and not about being God's good news to the world. Like God says to his people, I am giving you a sacred mission. You are supposed to be me to the world. When people say, who is Israel's God? It's look at Israel's, Israel's people. And they were supposed to hear the cry of the widow and the orphan and the immigrant and the exile and the forgotten and the poor. That's how people would know who this God is. And what they started to do is to make it all about themselves. 
God is saying, do not become the type of people that you were liberated from. And yet, the text says, when they're in Israel, in these places, Solomon is now amassing wives and military might. He's storing up gold and silver. He's trading arms. The country is condoning slavery. In 1 Kings 10, 14, this is what it says. The weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents. Now, numbers are important in a Jewish mindset, so it's not too subtle. Oh, we weighed it, and coincidence? I think not. The writer there is letting you know that Solomon is or is becoming someone who is working against the purposes of God in the world. And what will happen in the end is this kingdom does not stand. When Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam takes over, starts to tax the northern tribes even more heavily. And the northern tribes are like, you know what? We're done with this. We're out. Civil war ensues. And instead of being about reconciliation like God called them to be about, they all ran towards their own self-centered worlds and, again, their own comfort. Now, if you have a Bible, open to Amos chapter 6. If you have an element Bible, that's on page 499. So in this place, God starts raising up prophets, a lot of those minor prophets that we talked about. Nahum, Habakkuk, Haggai, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, all their eyes like bulging hair on fire, brimstone. God's going to do something. you got to wake up. This is not right. Masses are hungry, and you have slaves. This is not what God had in mind. And they start calling this entire empire on the carpet saying, shape up. So Amos comes. Amos says this, Amos chapter 6, verse 1. Woe to those who are at ease, that's the word complacent, in Zion. Zion would be Jerusalem. When you look at that psalm and it says, oh, it seemed too good to be true that God returned us to Zion. Well, this is, whether this is Zion, what they're talking about. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Verse 4, I'm going to read this to you out of the NIV. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You're all about your leisure. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. I don't know if you ever go to a restaurant and you get wine by the glass or by the, the bottle. I've never seen it offered by the bowlful, but apparently here they are. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Go to verse 12. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow there? That's the sea with oxen, and the answer is no. But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. Now, Amos's rant will go on for nine chapters. It is brilliant as he picks apart the hardness of their hearts. But that is actually written in poetry. There is also an historical record of this. So open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 36. That is on page 249 if you have an element Bible. You're welcome. So God kind of gets put in this awkward position, like I think he does with crazy Christians today, because he has said, you're my people. Be my message to the world. The way that the world will know who I am is how my image bearers live out in the world. And yet these image bearers of him are not reflecting who God is in any way. And what happens when you have a people that are supposed to be living for your name, but don't reflect you in any way? Like, what do you do if you're God? Not that I'm asking that question a lot, but what do you do if you're, if you're God and your people show the world everything but what you are actually like? Well, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, starting in verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, this would be the God who freed them from slavery in Egypt. 
The God of their fathers sent persistently to them by his messengers, that's his prophets, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Now, the northern tribes in Israel, they had 19 kings and one queen before the Assyrians came and captured and, and hauled them off. Not one of them worshiped God. In the kingdom of Judah, they had 20 kings. Only eight of those came at some point in their lives to have some semblance of worship of God before the Babylonians came and hauled them off into captivity. But what you will see is this losing of their kingdom and their place was also good news. Because when that happened, many of the Israelites started to listen to what God was saying again in that hard place. So 2 Chronicles 36 verse 17 goes on. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. That's the Babylonians. And they, verse 19, and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. Now, some people think, why would God allow this? Why would God allow it? We're told here that God actually did this himself. He had them come for this purpose. Verse 20, he took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants, that's the word for slave, to him and his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, that, that's another sermon in its own about the 70 years of this. But they start in Egypt as slaves, and they cry out to God. And God hears that cry. He comes and rescues them. He takes them from slavery into freedom. He takes them to a mountain at Sinai. And he gives them this message that you are going to be my people to the world. The way that people will know me is by how you live. So be my people. So they get to their own country. And in their own country, they start building their country on the back of slaves. And they do not listen to God's prophets and his messengers who are calling them back to repent and return to God. And eventually God sends the Babylonians to come and discipline them again. And I will tell you, Babylon's a bad place. Anytime the Rolling Stones will name an album after where you live, it's got to be a bad place. Now, open your Bibles to Psalm 137. Psalm 137 actually takes place after Psalm 126, but, and, but Psalms is not written chronologically. Psalm 137, the, when it was written, was actually written before Psalm 126. And in Psalm 137, what you will see is what happens to these people's hearts while they are in Babylon. So the Psalm 137, starting in verse 1, it says this, By the rivers of Babylon, that's where they're in captivity, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. I know you're thinking, this sounds like a Bob Marley song. He took it out of the Bible. Okay, On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Yet how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? It's like we have no reason to sing at all. See, originally you go back, and they thought the good news of their rescue from slavery was so they could have it all. They forgot that the God who rescued them and called them gave them a country so they would become a blessing to the world. I think this is some things that people in America need to remember today as well. What they did is they lost their intimacy with God when they thought they had it all. And now that they have lost it all, that intimacy is starting to return again. They lost their power and wealth, but now they're beginning to see where wealth actually comes from. So here, they weep for, first off, what was lost, their country, their privilege, their temple. They weep for where they are in a foreign land, oppressed by those stronger than they. 
and they weep for the realization of their own sin, which led to God's discipline. And the interesting thing here is they don't get mad at God. What they do is they repent and they want to return. What's the first step in discipleship with God? Repentance, walking with him, coming back. And so what do they do in Babylon? They weep and they cry out, and God hears the cry. God always hears the cry. The scriptures seem tilted to show us that God cares about people in bondage. They cry out in Egypt, now they cry out in Babylon. Maybe this is like you and your journey to follow who Jesus is in your life. A lot of people, when they come to follow Jesus, they're like, I hit bottom, I had no way out, I was overwhelmed, I couldn't do it on my own, I was slave to my desires, and I cried out, Jesus, if you're there, and Jesus is like, if I'm here, of course, I'm here. There all seems to be a moment when every single one of us cries out. And God hears that cry and he comes and rescues us. And if we have no needs or really no awareness of our condition or needs, physical or spiritual, then we're going to think we don't need God. But when we understand our needs and the needs of the world around us, we begin to understand the gospel better, that God steps in and rescues us where we are. God hears and God brings his people home. And you're probably thinking, okay, this is a bummer of a message. Where do we get to the joy? Well, now we get to the joy. Psalm 126, it seemed like a dream too good to be true when God returns Zion's exiles. Now, there's so many things in that first line right there because the return there, that's where we get our root for repentance. I mean, as we've said over the last years here, repentance is the place where life and discipleship begins. We return to God. God brings us back to himself and that return brings joy. We return to God. God brings us back to himself and that produces joy. It's a work that God himself does in our lives. It seemed like a dream too good to be true. Why? Because they thought maybe God had forgotten about them or God didn't care or God wasn't as good as he said he was. But God proved that he was good and that he cared and that he had a plan and he would be faithful. He shows himself to be faithful, be steadfast. Join life with God doesn't mean we don't experience pain or loss or trials or struggle or uncertainty. When the Israelites come back, they'll start to rebuild their temple and their city. And there's a priest named Nehemiah in the middle of this. And Nehemiah will say to these grieving Israelites in Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. The words of the law is the scriptures read to them again. They hadn't heard them in so long, and now they do. And they're thinking, Why have we spent so long away from God's words who are what is given to us? Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Joy is strength. And where does our joy come from? Understanding what God has done. These people were meant to live in joy. And yet, they had walked away from that for so many years, and they became focused upon themselves. And God is renewing their joy again. The absence of joy actually creates weakness. Dallas Willard wrote this, Failure to attain a deeply satisfying life always has the effect of making sinful actions seem good. Here lies the strength of temptation. Normally, our success in overcoming temptation will be easier if we are basically happy with our lives. To cut off the joys and pleasures associated with our bodily lives and social existence as unspiritual then can actually have the effect of weakening us in our efforts to do what is right. 
The key to arranging our lives where sin no longer looks appealing to us is simply to be a people who begin to focus more and more on what God has done for us, to see lives through the lens of the gospel, what God does to come and save us, just like they're trying to do in this psalm of ascent as they remind themselves of the joy of what it is to actually be able to worship God. We must be a people who begin to take those steps, who repent and trust God and worship Him and serve others. And out of that comes our witness. Then we become steadfast and then comes our joy. It's like each step of the journey brings something more and more deep. One writer pointed out that our life and our joy, how we see it, typically will flow to a certain extent from our thinking. Even psychologists will say this. They'll they'll tell you that between the events that happen and our reaction to those events are our beliefs and interpretations. The New Testament writers, they didn't just walk around trying to have a positive mental attitude about everything. What they did is they looked at everything through the lens of Christ's saving work for them. And that enabled them in the midst of martyrdom and pain and strife and jail and starvation to be a people who could still live in joy in the midst of all those things because they understood what Jesus did in rescuing us. Well, Psalm 26 goes on. We laughed, we sang, we couldn't believe our good fortune. I mean, this is like where kids just start to laugh and sing. Can you believe how great this is? Oh, it is so amazing. In the creation narrative, God in his joy makes everything. He creates with enthusiasm. G.K. Chesterton says that kids are more like God than we ever will be. This is what he writes. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. The for grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may be that God makes every daisy separately because he has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. Sometimes we see the sin that we do and how we run from God and how God continually says, come home, repent, come home, I'll bring you home, repent, come back, come home. And God just does this over and over and over where we would get tired of it because we eventually say, well, how many times do I have to forgive that person? I'm just done. God exults in being able to say, return, return, come home, come home. God, we want to be your people. Teach me to come home. And I think when we live in joy, we live more like God than any other time. Genesis throbs with this refrain. God said, and it was so, and indeed it was good. And God said, and it was so, and indeed it was good. And God said, and it was so, and indeed it was good. Over and over, we get bored. And we don't realize the beauty of the creation that we get to experience. We forget what God has done by simply giving his life. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. God is concerned about his glory, but out of that glory comes joy to all of us. Joy in the end becomes our eternal destiny. Creation is meant to mirror the joy that God himself has. Man was meant to bring joy in how we create and steward God's creation. Our laughter and joy is meant to return us to finding so much joy in God himself. And too often we focus on ourselves and not God and we lose that joy just like the Israelites did. Psalm 126 goes on. We were the talk of the nations. God was wonderful to them. Why are they the talk of the nations of those surrounding them? Because nobody thought Israel was ever going to get their kingdom back. Nobody thought that was going to take place. And yet it did. 
Yet it did. And it wasn't simply that they got their kingdom back. It was that they were so excited about it that joy started to become infectious to the nations around them. John Piper once said, God made his people to enjoy him and the life he gives them. Psalm 16, verse 11, now the NIV says, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Psalm 37, verse 4, Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. As we learn to find joy in who God is and what he does, our tastes begin to change. Our palates change. Righteousness tastes good. Sin tastes bad. Sometimes we keep trying to eat the sin. We're like, oh, that just tastes terrible. It's supposed to taste terrible. As we enjoy God, our will starts to come together with his and people will start to take notice. Jesus says, if we love him and enjoy God, we will love the things that God loves. The church father Augustine says, love God and do whatever you please. And that scares us because we think if people hear that, they're going to be evil. Not if we love Jesus first. A life enjoyed to God's glory and our joy shows God's kingdom. And that was and is what he continually calls his people to. Psalm 126, God is wonderful to us. We are one happy people. The God, God's grace that came and brought them joy actually unified the Israelites for a pretty long time until they started to focus again on themselves. And as travelers went to worship God in this ascent, this song would remind them of what God did. The reason they get to make the ascent, the reason they get to go worship is what God did. Joy came because they focused on what God did, not what they did. And unity would come because of that joy when they focused again on what God did for them in restoring them. Again, Psalm 126. And now, God, do it again. Bring rains to our drought-stricken lives so those who planted their crops in despair will shout hurrahs at the harvest. No matter where we find ourselves, we trust that God is good and He will bring us to Himself even though at times we don't understand the, the courses that he's taking us through. The focus here is God, do it again. Going back to being like that child, do it again, do it again, do it again. Bring us home. Do the amazing things that you do. The Bible speaks of joy, not like we experience on our own, but the kind that is characterized by God. I mean, this is one of the reasons that whole Old Testament sacrificial system was put into place. It was put there so that we could be a people who had our sins covered by the blood of the lambs that were shed until Jesus eventually comes to take away our sin altogether, to remove our sin from us so we can step into a relationship with God. God was always about bringing his people back, returning them to himself so that we could be who we were always meant to be. God does not leave us in our sin and rebellion. God steps into our world to bring us back to him. The son of God was born into the world to begin a renewed humanity. John 15, 11, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. God comes to bring new life again. It is a life that is full of life and joy. And we begin to live a God-centered life, just like God lives a God-centered life and not a me-centered life like we tend to focus on. Psalm 126, it ends. So those who went off with heavy hearts will come home laughing with armloads of blessing. And guys, my goodness, is that where you are today? Do you have a heavy heart? Do you feel like your life is overwhelming? Have you run to so many places that just feels like you have put yourself in the middle of Babylon? Well, Cry out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus because he brings joy. Francis de Sales said this, The evil one is pleased with sadness and melancholy because he himself is sad and melancholy, and he will be so for all eternity. Hence, he desires that everyone should be like himself. We don't want to be like the evil one. We want to be like God who lives in joy. 
we are called to be a people who display and show that joy because we are centered in what God did to save us as a people. Living in God's joy doesn't mean you're, you're in, the, in a corner with a lampshade on your head, drinking too much, going, woo! Living in the joy of the Lord means we start in a place that Jesus has redeemed us, that we understand His grace given to us, and people will be reached with the joy and love of Jesus much more than they'll be reached by really anything else that we do, because it's Jesus who brings that joy. Jesus died. He rose. He gave us the gift of life. Our righteousness comes from God. We don't have to be downcast because we didn't do it well enough in our past. None of us will ever do it well enough. We must be a people who trust that Christ did it. And He is the one who gives His righteousness to us as a people. And Christians miss this. Sometimes we think that if we don't do certain things or avoid certain pleasures, well, then we're holy. Well, what's a sin? Anything you like. If you want a pure motive, well, you better do something you don't like because that's the only thing that comes from a pure motive. That's dumb. A pure motive is that we would enjoy God forever because we've come home to Him and we worship Him. All we need is Jesus. But our problem is many times we are too wicked and prideful to admit it. Jesus died in our place for the joy that was set before Him. Jesus already had joy and community and glory and love. He didn't need us. So why did Jesus die? What benefit does Jesus get from dying for our sin? Nothing. Nothing. And what that means is when He came to rescue us and die for us, He did it because He wanted to, not because He had to. And what that is supposed to produce in us is humbleness, grace, a love for God, service to others, and extreme joy. A return to who we were meant to be. Our problem many times is not that we're not happy enough. We don't have enough joy for God's taste. Again, John Piper says, a life enjoyed to God's glory and our joy shows God's kingdom. That is a people who step in, return to who God calls us to be. We trust Him. We worship Him. We have service to others around us. And in that service, we're witnessing, and we start walking steadfast through all the trials of the life. And eventually, we will be like these people here who say, Oh my goodness, God, do it again. You bring your people home again and again. Teach us to be those who live in joy because you are continually bringing us back. Bring us back again. If you are someone today who feels like you've just been so far from God, maybe it's just the last couple days or the last weeks or months or maybe your entire life, we would invite you to surrender all that you are to all that He is and experience that joy of what it means to be a people who come to Christ, to return to Him like these people got to return home. And then you get to return to who Jesus is, our great God and Savior who rescues us. This is why we come to communion every week. Communion is that reminder of what Christ did to rescue us. And we're told he does it partly in joy. For the joy set before him, he comes and rescues us. When we take communion today, we don't need to take communion in in sadness or melancholy. We want to take it in joy as a reminder of what God did. We worship him in the midst of breaking the cracker like Christ's body was broken and drinking the grape juice as a reminder of what his blood was shed for us to bring us back home again that we get to be a people who live in God's joy. And he is constantly calling us back. If you need prayer, you know, talk to uh, Sarah at the Welcome Center, and she will connect you with somebody. And we'd love to be able to pray with you to have you begin to move to a place where you trust Christ with your entire life because you will begin to experience the great joy that God intends for his people to live in. And it's a joy, again, centered not in us, but in what he has done. We are people who give, and that's why there's offering boxes around the room, because we give because God gave so much to us. And so enjoy 
we give back. We don't pass the plate. We, we never have and we don't because it's meant to be voluntary. It's meant to be a, a result of our joy. So that's why we give. And we also encourage you to grab those sermon notes to ask one another the questions that are in there, to walk through some of those questions about joy and hope and life and returning to God, because we want to be those that encourage one another to continue to walk in the joy. Because when we have this common joy centered around Christ, we become a unified people. And we want to encourage everyone to be unified around the great saving grace of Jesus Christ. Let us be those people who center ourselves and the salvation that we have received, the gospel, the good news of God's rescue of us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that today you would take us and move us to a place of joy and hope as we understand the reconciliation that we have received in you, that you would bring us to yourself and remind us of how we have been brought to yourself. And that, in turn, would humble us to want our wills and our hearts and our lives to beat in time with yours, that we would surrender all that we have to all that you are, and then we would step out into the great joy that that brings. God, I ask that you would just continually undo us with your goodness, that your joy would be pervasive into every part of who we are, and that your people would be known by that joy. Teach us to walk in that goodness and this grace as we walk in this discipleship journey with you, moving to those places of joy and hope and life and have that be infectious to those around us, that people around us would say, oh my goodness, look at that joyful people. And then they would understand that that joy simply comes from you and your rescue of us. And we ask that in your son's good name. Amen.